0: Um, I think learning how to make standard base recipes is a great place to kind of build your baking library. So like, learn how to make a pie crust. And then when you learn how to make a pie crust, you can make a gullet, or you can make a pie, or you can make hand pies, or you can make all different things with it. Um, and those things can be sweet or savory.
1: This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbonell. Yasi Arafi is a master of the one-bowl bake. The recipe developer behind cookbooks like Sweeter Off the Vine and Snacking Cakes is back with Snacking Bakes, a treasure trove of truly simple recipes designed to take you from zero to cookie in no time. In this episode, we talk about the advantages of developing accessible recipes in a cramped New York City kitchen and more. And also on the show, Matt catches up with Natasha Kravchuk, the creator of the popular website Natasha's Kitchen and the author of the New York Times bestseller of the same name. Through approachable, budget-minded recipes and a sense of style and place, Natasha has won over millions of fans, and she's become one of the leading voices in food. But do you really know Natasha? On this episode, we answer many questions and get a sense of what inspires the Ukraine-born, Idaho-residing, home cook, recipe developer, and entrepreneur. We hope you enjoy both these great conversations. see Arafi, this is Taste. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so we're here to talk about your new book, Snacking Bakes, and your first book, Snacking Cakes, was released during the first year of the pandemic, which was such a big time for baking. And now we're kind of in a different era for home cooking. And I'm curious if you thought at all about how the like landscape the book is being released into has changed.
0: Yeah, I think the pandemic made a lot of new bakers, like people who maybe weren't interested in cooking or baking before really explored it. And so I think that Snacking Bakes is just like a really great follow-up for those people because it's still really easy recipes. There are tons of flavors represented. Uh, it's the same, you know, you need the same equipment, basically, just a bowl and a whisk and a spatula and a, just a couple of pans and you can make every recipe in the book. So it's like, it definitely will be attractive to those people who loved snacking cakes. And I think it'll be attractive to anyone who wants to bake something and just doesn't have a lot of time and doesn't want to make a big mess, which is, I think, most people.
1: Yeah, probably everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone that doesn't have a, a dishwasher, at least. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so like one of the benefits of being a recipe developer on Instagram, I think, is that you have this direct line into people's kitchens, what they're making, definitely what they are sharing and want other people to know about. I'm curious, like a temperature check with snacking cakes, like what were recipes that people were baking the most and were they the ones that you expected?
0: Uh, there were a few that I s- got tagged in so many times. One was the – there's a sesame cake that's made with tahini that people seem to really love. Um, and then the ne- another one was – there's a pumpkin olive oil cake that I actually got to make with Claire Saffitz on Dessert Person. And so I think that um, that reach was just so wide. People loved that pumpkin olive oil cake. And then in the spring, I got tagged a lot in the strawberry cake. And in the summer, I get tagged a lot in the plum and almond cake. So it's like a little bit seasonal what people are going for. But those, I think, are the top four for sure.
1: Those make a lot of sense. I remember making your I think I mixed and matched a chocolate cake recipe with the salted caramel glaze from another recipe in that book for my own birthday cake and it was so delicious and also the salted caramel glaze just looked so beautiful i was taking i was like a stage mom taking pictures (laughs) of that glaze so i'm surprised that's not a contender too but it makes sense
0: yeah i love that you mix and match that's like exactly what i wanted people to do with the book just to like take the toppings and the glazes and mix them however sounded delicious to them
1: well it also is because i didn't own powdered sugar before and then that's like what the main ingredient in a glaze is I guess so then once I had it I was making glazes for everything because I just like wanted to like use the most of that bag that I could and it was kind of like exciting to have this ingredient that I had never really worked with before.
0: Oh that's so great yeah and it's super versatile I mean it's just it's a base that you can add almost any flavor to so you can make it chocolatey you can make it fruity you could add almond extract and make it nutty like you can just go so many directions, and it's all really easy. I mean, you just add some liquid and a little bit of flavor.
1: Yeah, I was wondering about making, like, a cold brew glaze or something Ooh, like yeah. that. Have you ever swapped in, like, other liquids?
0: Yeah, I, I've definitely used coffee. Sometimes I'll use, like, a little bit of something like rum or Hermonier. Um You could really—I mean, truly just anything that you have in the fridge. You could use juice. Um, Natasha Pickowitz uses vinegar sometimes, which sounds really delicious that I haven't tried.
1: Whoa. Yeah. I love that. That's a very Natasha thing to do. Yeah, totally. So like seeing the recipes that were the most popular out of snacking cakes, did that inform your approach at all when you're going back and making this second book?
0: Um, It did. I think with both books, I tried to utilize like a huge variety of flavors. So there was kind of something for everyone. I know that people really gravitate. Especially like in the cake category, they really loved the cakes that had fruit. so I tried to include lots of cakes with fruit. And I love baking with fruit. My first book was all about um, seasonal fruit desserts. And then I tried to, you know translate those fruit flavors to other things that you might not normally have uh, have as a fruit, like a fruit flavor
1: dessert, like a cookie or a bar. Yeah. Are there any like fruity cookies that come to mind as favorites from the book?
0: Yeah. There's like a lemon cornmeal cookie that has this beautiful blueberry glaze that you make with freeze dried blueberries. And it's just like tart. And the cornmeal adds a little bit of texture to the cookie. um, And it's really beautiful.
1: I love that. I feel like in the summer, I just want to eat as much fruit as I can. And I always I'm like aspiring to bake with it, but the quantity of fruit that you have to buy to bake with if you're also going to be eating is always more than I think <laughs> it's going to be and by the time I'm like sitting down to bake, I've snacked my way through like most of the fruit.
0: Yeah, like if you're making a pie or something you need a few pounds of of fruit. But if you're making a cake you only need like, you know, a cup or so.
1: Also like the cakes and the pies are worth it. Like I should just carve out a day, I think, and like spend money on stone fruit and do it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I love a peach pie. And the plum plum pie is actually
0: my favorite of the stone fruit
1: pies. Yeah, your plum cake that you mentioned before, it kind of reminded me of the Marion Burroughs like plum tort, that iconic cake that I still have not made this summer.
0: Yeah, that was totally the inspiration. I added a little bit of um, almond flour to it and some and uh other good things. Other good things. Yeah. The Marion Burroughs plum tart was totally the inspiration for that cake. And I just added some almond extract and some almond flour and some, oh, some sliced almonds on top for texture.
1: Nice. So I feel like one of the big appeals with your recipes is that they really are like approachable and accessible in terms of the ingredients and definitely the equipment that's required, like not needing a stand mixer or beaters or like a lot of equipment. Yeah. Um, but it must be difficult to develop recipes like that. And I'm curious like uh, if you find that to be a challenge or maybe like if you have finessed the way that you've developed recipes along the way to be hitting this kind of target for people.
0: Yeah, I definitely work within a pretty small framework for the recipes for these books because I want them to feel really accessible to people who don't have any equipment or somebody who's just starting baking who might have to, like, buy everything they need to make something. Um, So you don't need any electric equipment. You need, you know, one bowl, snacking cakes. You just need one pan. Snacking bakes, you need the same size pan and some... Um, half sheet pans, which are really inexpensive to buy at like a restaurant supply. Um, But yeah, I really streamlined kind of the process of making all of these different baked goods. And one of the main things that I did was to always call for, what I'm calling for butter is to call for melted butter instead of softened butter. Mm. Um, And that makes things easier to mix. You don't have to wait to soften butter on your counter. Um, And they come together really easily with, uh, with hand equipment rather than electric equipment.
1: Does it change the texture at all to be working with melted butter instead of softened? It does a little bit. um, The
0: cookie recipes are probably different than a lot of the cookie recipes that you've seen before, but I was still able to achieve a lot of different textures. So there's crispy cookies and chewy cookies and um, kind of everything in between.
1: What was the recipe that was like the biggest challenge to streamline to fit into these parameters for snacking bakes? Um, the
0: recipe that I tested the most was chocolate chip cookies, for sure, because people have like capital O opinions about chocolate chip cookies, and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to satisfy everybody with the cookie recipes in the book, um, specifically the chocolate chip cookie recipes. So I tried to make something that was that I found really delicious and that felt very snacky and not too indulgent, um, and I was able to make chocolate chip cookie recipes for a variety of dietary preferences, which was also really important to me. So there's definitely, hopefully, a chocolate chip cookie for everyone in the book. What's your platonic ideal chocolate chip cookie? I like to use a little bit of whole grain flour, but I don't have to. And I like them to be, you know, have a crisp edge and a soft center, but not doughy. And this might be a little controversial, but I like them to not have too much chocolate um, because I think sometimes it can be a little overkill when it's just like totally packed with chocolate.
1: Like mostly chocolate. Yeah. Do you rest the dough?
0: Uh, No, I don't rest the dough. You can rest the dough for sure, but that was another parameter for the snacking bakes is that you don't have to rest any of the cookie doughs. You can bake them all right away and you can bake them all in one
1: go. Like all of the cookie dough fits on two sheet pans. That's crazy to me that you don't have to rest the dough because I feel like every chocolate chip cookie that I've made before that's been like BA's best or the New York Times best, like that's such a requirement for the process. How do you avoid having to do that? I mean, it definitely can make the cookies.
0: It gives the cookies a different texture when you rest them. That's totally delicious. Um, But for these recipes, I just really wanted people to be able to go from like zero to cookie in less than an hour without the resting time. So you still can. And, yet, like, I keep cookie dough in my freezer, and I bake it from the freezer all the time.
1: Zero to cookie is such a good <laughs> <laughs> phrase. I'm, in my head, I'm thinking that, like, Rihanna lyric, like, from Shut Up and Drive, that's like zero to 60 in 3.5. Totally. It's zero to cookie in 3.5. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, and I feel like maybe an advantage that you have in this field of streamlining recipes is being a baker in New York City and maybe not having as much counter space or you don't have a dishwasher do you? I don't have a dishwasher I don't have a microwave my freezer can fit like three ice
0: trays and like There's usually, like, a gallon-sized bag of frozen fruit, and, like, that's about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, do you feel like that gives you um, maybe, like, insight or something into, like, trying to make accessible recipes? Yeah, I think it definitely does because I'm really conscientious of the number of dishes that I'm using every time I cook something.
0: Um, Because when you can just throw stuff in a dishwasher, it doesn't seem like a big deal to use an extra bowl or whatever. But when I know I'm going to be hand-washing that later, I definitely think twice about every tool and utensil that I'm using.
1: Yeah, I relate. I feel like one of the biggest things that convinced me to start using a scale when I was baking, in addition to it being more precise, was that I didn't have to be washing all of my uh, measuring cups and measuring spoons in the same way.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. And like, there are certain things that are just kind of annoying to wash, like the corners of a measuring cup when you have something sticky in there. It's just very annoying <laughs> annoying to wash if you can't just throw it in your dishwasher.
1: Yeah. And I feel like you must be, you know, you're, you're developing recipes, you're testing them again. Like just the amount of dishes that are being dirtied is at a scale that I probably like can't even think about. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. So I want to talk about the like cravings matrix that you have at the front of your book, because I think that's really fun. Can you maybe like break down what that is to a listener that hasn't opened the book before?
0: So the craving ma- matrix breaks down all of the different flavors that are represented in the book and then all of the different types of bakes that are in the book. So... The table of contents is very straightforward. The chapter headers are pretty straightforward. It's cookies, bars and brownies, and cakes, basically, um, which isn't super descriptive. So we wanted to have, we wanted to give people something that they can open up and like have a craving and be able to just kind of like look at an organized list and be like, okay, this is a, uh, toasty, spicy cookie, and there's a list of warm and toasty cookies, or I want to make a cake that's fruity or a cake that's chocolatey, and so you can just look through the matrix and find kind of exactly what you're in the mood for, and hopefully there's a wide enough variety that, like, every craving can be satisfied.
1: Yeah, so right now I have it up, so let's say I wanted a chocolatey bar brownie. I could do the triple triple chocolate olive oil brownies, or I could do loaded chocolate chip cookie bars. Those oh. both sound so great. And on the fruity side of things, if I wanted a fruity cookie, soft grapefruit cookies is the first one that stands out to me because I love grapefruit and everything. Me too. When you were, so you, do, you did the ma- the matrix first and then you put in all of the recipes or did you kind of reverse engineer it around the recipes? It was a little bit reverse engineered trying to categorize we're trying to figure out how to
0: categorize everything in a way that was more interesting than just listing them out
1: yeah i think it's really fun and i can imagine people that are indecisive especially like even just closing your eyes and like putting your finger somewhere on the matrix and seeing where that is is like such a fun way to decide what to have for dessert and it also speaks to the fact that these recipes are so like quick to throw together that like you could actually go from from zero to cookie or whatever (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think that's like that's not something you had in your other book, right? It's not. No, that's a new edition for this one. Well, I like it. And I imagine that other books might um, take a page out of it literally as well. So while we're like calling out recipes, I'm curious if there's like a recipe or maybe a couple that you think like encapsulates the ethos of snacking bakes the most. Um, I think one that you actually mentioned is the loaded chocolate chip cookie bars, which are
0: it's a vegan recipe. So there are no eggs or dairy. Um, so it's basically like it's all pantry ingredients. You don't need any like you don't need any eggs or dairy, so you don't need anything refrigerated. Um, and you can kind of add whatever mix-ins you have around your house. It's just like a great easy base for for any chocolate or nuts or even dried fruit. Um, and it comes together really fast. What is it using if it doesn't have any eggs or dairy? Um, It just uses oil, and then there's no egg replacer or kind of
1: binder. It just doesn't need it. It's just like the other ingredients come together in a way that it makes sense. Exactly. That's cool. Do you feel like that's your approach towards... Uh, vegan or like dairy-free baking in general, is trying to just use ingredients that would otherwise be in the recipe instead of trying to do egg substitutions?
0: Yeah, most of the time that's the direction that I go because I think egg substitutions um, work well for some things and they don't work great for other things. And so it's hard to kind of make a direct um, swap in lots of recipes. So for me, when I'm developing a recipe that I know I don't want it to have dairy or eggs, I just kind of start with a baseline of um, just like pantry ingredients.
1: I like that idea. And I think coming back to the chocolate chip cookie that we were talking about, to me, that feels like one of the most difficult recipes in like the American recipe pantheon to develop because everybody has their preferences and it's such a ubiquitous recipe. Like everyone has a chocolate chip cookie recipe. So I'm curious, like what were you trying to add to the chocolate chip cookie conversation with the recipes in this book?
0: Yeah, I was definitely trying to add A cookie that didn't need to be rested. Um, Huge. Huge. And then something that had uh, a little bit of maybe a surprising flavor. So the chocolate chip cookie and there's a vegan chocolate chip cookie recipe as well that I think is really great. Like I would make either of them any day. Um, They both have a little bit of whole grain flour in them, which I just think is really delicious and adds nice texture and nice flavor um, that people may not have tried before. And so I love baking with whole grain flour. So I kind of wanted to share that in a way that felt really approachable and like a chocolate chip cookie felt like a great way to to get that in.
1: Yeah, I love that in a chocolate chip cookie. Sarah Jampel did a, a buckwheat chocolate chip cookie that is one of my go-tos because I think that it adds like such a nutty, savory flavor that works so well with, with bittersweet chocolate, especially. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm a beginner baker myself, or maybe on that journey. Definitely a lot of people that cook your recipes are. If you could give a piece of advice to kind of beginner bakers, what would it be? I would say start with something
0: simple. Like don't go from zero to layer cake, go from like zero to cookie (laughs) or zero (laughs) to snacking cake. Um, and then also like, don't be afraid to make a mistake. Like what's the worst thing that could happen? It's like, You've made something that's less than like perfectly delicious. Most things can be saved with like some ice cream or whipped cream on top, Um, and just to like have fun with it and make like remember that it's not like the most important thing in the world to bake something, but it can be a really fun and satisfying hobby. And so just to like keep it light and don't put too much pressure on yourself to make things perfect the first time, especially.
1: Okay, I'm going to listen to this back the next time (laughs) I'm baking something. If you are trying to maybe maybe you're you've baked the cookies before you you've done that kind of base level and you want to push yourself a little bit do you have any suggestions for like what that reach recipe should be um i think learning how to make like kind of standard base recipes is a great
0: place to kind of build your baking library so like learn how to make a pie crust. And then when you learn how to make a pie crust, you can make a gullet or you can make a pie or you can make hand pies or you can make all different things with it. Um, and those things can be sweet or savory. So I think finding those building blocks and getting comfortable with making those building blocks is a great way to to learn how to bake and also to be creative in your baking because when you know those base recipes, you can uh, adjust them to your own taste, which I think is the most fun thing about baking.
1: Yeah, I like that. Do you feel like there's a recipe maybe in this book or in a different book that just is like such a classic Yossi recipe? Oh, gosh. Um, My first book had a lot
0: of pies and galettes in it because it was uh, a fruit-based baking book. And I still love those recipes so, so much. Um, Snacking bakes and snacking cakes are all like, They're all they feel so special to me because I think because of how much great feedback I've gotten um, about how people bake from the book and they bake from it often and they bake from it with their kids and they, you know, love to give it as gifts. And so I feel like those recipes all feel really, really, really special to me. Mm -hmm. I can't
1: choose one. Okay, I won't (laughs) choose. Well, maybe when you like do you ever go out to eat dessert and baked goods in the city or are you mostly eating what you make at home? Um, I
0: definitely love to order dessert when I'm out. I do eat dessert, I mean, almost every day.
1: <laughs> I love that. I think we all should be eating more dessert. Yeah. When you're going out to order dessert, what's the thing that you see on a menu and you're like, oh, actually, I have to get this?
0: Oh, gosh. I love um, I love when restaurants make like really interesting ice creams because that's something that I don't usually do at home. And then I also love really simple things like a very good chocolate mousse or something that seems simple but has really interesting garnishes with you know, herbal flavors or something that I wouldn't that I wouldn't make at home. Something with a lot of components that I wouldn't make at home.
1: Yeah, I had a Sunday at Gage and Tallner recently that I think would fit onto all of this criteria for you because it was uh, corn, ice cream, and that had all these toppings and things that I wouldn't make at home. So it was doubly special in that way. Yeah. Where are your favorite places to have dessert in the city? Oh, gosh. Sorry, I didn't prep you on this one. I, I just want to steal your <laughs> <laughs> Uh Gosh, I have a. And I like only
0: go out in my neighborhood. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, you live in Greenpoint, right? Which is a great eating neighborhood. I went to Radio Bakery to get um, pastries just over the weekend. Yeah. I love the savory pastries
0: at Radio. Um, I'm thinking of the soft serves at Rule of Thirds are always incredibly delicious. They have a sesame soft serve there that's like so, so good. And they have um, seasonal ones, too. The last time I was there, they had a blackberry and I had the blackberry and sesame swirl. It was So tasty.
1: Whoa, I'm a soft-serve fiend, and I've never had their soft-serve. Oh, it's so, so good. I normally go to Leo to get soft-serve. Have you had that one?
0: Uh, I haven't, but I should make a journey because...
1: Yeah, if you can wait until Concord Grape season, they do a swirl. uh, For the past couple years, that's Concord Grape swirled with salted caramel, and it is so good. I really like covet it year round. Oh my God. Concord grape is one of my favorite, favorite seasonal flavors. So I will definitely try that. I love that. I feel like when I moved to the East Coast is when I started having Concord grape. And it is one of the best things about fall. I normally feel sad about summer fruit leaving, but the Concord grapes kind of ease my pain.
0: Yeah. Concord grape pie is very laborious to make but it is
1: my favorite pie it's so good do you um take out the seeds i do take out the seeds when you said it was very laborious that was the first thing that came to mind yeah for me. how do you do that just take them out
0: you have to pinch the skins off which is actually pretty easy and then you cook the insides of the grapes like the grape flesh and once you kind of get it up to a certain temperature the seeds in the flesh separate but then you have to pass it through a strainer to get all the seeds out So it's a labor of love, but it's totally worth it.
1: Yeah, that sounds like you would make that for someone you care about. Yeah. If anyone ever makes me that pie, I'm going to (laughs) know. If I'm ever thinking
0: ahead at the end of the summer, I'll like put together um, filling for
1: Concord Grape Pie so I can have it at Thanksgiving. Oh, I love that. Have you ever done like a peanut butter and jelly pie with the Concord Grape? No, but that sounds really good. I put peanut butter in everything, so that's immediately where my brain went. But I feel like that would be good.
0: Yeah, you would love this tahini. The tahini blackberry swirl at Rural Thirds is like a really nice PB&J vibe.
1: Yeah, I'm going to go, honestly, as soon as we can. Yeah. Maybe today if they're open. <laughs> yeah. So before we go, um, you know, this is taste. We like to talk to guests about their taste. And I have a little kind of rapid fire Q&A for you. So I'll just kind of throw something out and you can let me know the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. okay. Um, Go to bodega snack. Jalapeno chips. Go to a uh, restaurant in New York City. Rule of thirds. (laughs) Your favorite cookbook? Ooh, uh, Thai, Good to the Grain, and The Last Course. Ooh, great answers. Um, Your favorite New York City bakery?
0: It depends what I want, because, like, sweet things and savory things are different. You can give me two. It's okay. (laughs) I love—one of my favorite baked goods in the city, if it counts, is the potato pizza at Sullivan Street Bakery. Mm. Okay.
1: Favorite store-bought or, like, pre-made dessert?
0: I love Oreos
1: and cookies and cream ice cream. Maybe together. <laughs> Maybe together. <laughs> Most underrated piece of kitchen equipment. A uh, Bench scraper. Most overrated ingredient. Truffle oil. That's like what everyone everyone's from. yeah. Says I mean, that. that's the yeah. great <laughs> answer. Uh, soft cookie or crunchy cookie? Crunchy. Brownie or blondie? Brownie. Eight by eight pan or loaf pan? Eight by eight. Why 8 by 8
0: I think it's a little bit more versatile because you can make a cake in it. You can make bars. You can make brownies. um, And with a loaf, you can make like really small batches of bars and brownies. But an 8 by 8 is a little, I think it's just a little more versatile. And you can, you know, bake savory things in it too.
1: Okay. I just want to throw one more comparison for you. Um, Pie
0: or cake? Oh, gosh. The impossible question. (sighs) I can't answer. (laughs)
1: it would be damaging to your brain to answer
0: (laughs) i don't even know i can't because like my like desires and cravings are so um like context specific it's like i think i would always want a birthday cake but i wouldn't want to eat cake on thanksgiving i would always want to eat pie so it just kind of depends where i am depends what season it is I can't choose. I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay. I appreciate you
1: sticking to your guns. I won't make you choose. Maybe one day we'll invent like a pie cake hybrid and it will be the the best of both worlds. yeah. This was so fun, Yossi. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much.
2: Natasha Kravchuk, welcome to This is Taste. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on your show.
2: Well, happy birthday it's your not your real birthday this is a new date for you like your book is out today
3: yes october 3rd my book is born and it's the day i became an author it feels
2: good congratulations natasha The book is terrific. I I've, I've had some time to uh, to spend with it and, you know, it, it really the recipes are so inviting and we're going to get into your style of cooking, which I think is very unique. It's informed by living in Idaho, it's informed by growing up in the Ukraine and and having um this this identity that's, you know, part Ukraine, part America. But first, I want to hear about moving to America in the 1980s. What was that journey like, and what was your first memory of American food?
3: Yeah, so I was young. I was four and a half years old. We moved out of Ukraine in 1989, and that was still during the time of the USSR, and it was—my parents were incredibly courageous to bring us out of that country. Um, We left— we were escaping Christian persecution at that time and just the journey that they explained to me. Obviously, I don't remember anything because I was too young, but the stories that they tell, um, I'm just incredibly thankful for their courage. And going to a new country with five tiny girls, a stack of suitcases, not knowing the language, it was just an amazing journey.
2: Wow. It's, it's incredible when you say it's five of you youngsters. and And where did you move to? What was the first city that you lived in?
3: Yeah, actually, the first stop that we came to was New York City. That's okay. where our plane landed. So it feels amazing to be here. Um, but our first uh, city that we lived in was Seattle. So that's where I grew up.
2: So in Seattle, you know, you're you're young and you're growing up there. Tell me, what were some of the early food memories that you have of American food?
3: Yeah, so our family, we were pretty poor and my first memories of american food actually came from food from the food bank and so the food bank has a very special place in my heart to just um my parents i remember they would bring just like these halls of food bank foods and um that was my first experience with american food i even have a photo in the cookbook of me with an early food bank haul.
2: i saw that there's like some checks in there i'm sure that might have been a new product some canned food and 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 I love that mention of your history. If Food banks are are so important in America yes. and around the world, really. But in America specifically, we'll talk about that. Were there any foods that you really were just like, I love this? This is like, to me, feels like a brand new adventure.
3: Um, This sounds kind of gross, but uh, canned frosting.
2: <laughs> Dude, not gross. Are you kidding me?
3: I used to sneak it in the pantry.
2: <laughs> canned
3: frosting
2: is... Honestly, <laughs> are you kidding me? Like f- for the funfetti cake, that stuff is good, Oh, man. my
3: goodness. Yeah, if I had sprinkles in it, that's next level. <laughs> yeah, definitely.
2: Okay, so you moved to Boise, Idaho, and you've been there since. Um, and you cook with your mother. Your mother lives nearby. You have family surrounding you in Boise. Yes. Um, I'd love to get into the style that you've created Um, that I think is informed by your family. It's informed by the Mountain West living there. What's, the st- what's your style of cooking at Natasha's Kitchen?
3: Yeah, so definitely everything I cook is influenced by, you know, the way I grew up, the foods I grew up with, um, my Ukrainian heritage, and then America is so much a melting pot. So it's influenced by American cuisine, and right now it's just a little bit of everything. Um, and we do gather at my mom's house every Sunday. We get together, we cook, we eat, and it's just a great
2: time. Tell me about, what are, like, the last time you guys got together? Like, what was, what was on the menu? What were some of the dishes?
3: Yeah. Um, let me think. This past Sunday, um, we got together for lunch and we had I think the the go to's are usually some kind of chicken. Um, plov is a big one, yeah. which is a, a really great um, flavored rice, and multiple salads. We all bring a dish too, so it kind of makes it it always feels like Thanksgiving on Sunday. It's yeah. wonderful.
2: I love that tradition of having a Sunday meal with family. I mean, if you if you have family nearby, there's nothing like it. Right. Um, what's Idaho like? What's 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 is it? I mean, I, I don't have any experience with it. Is it is it like you know a, a Denver? Is it similar to that a mountain town?
3: Um, uh, I don't know if I would com- compare it to Denver. It's kind of the best place in the world. It's like I want to say that, but I don't want to say that because we keep getting huge influxes of people. <laughs> oh my gosh. I've heard
2: like the pandemic brought all like the tech, oh, yeah. tech bros are all hanging out there. Yes,
3: a little people from everywhere yeah. are flooding Idaho, and it's just really a great place to live. It's very family friendly. It feels like a quieter pace of life, which we really enjoy.
2: Yeah, I um I feel like you have such be- beautiful vistas, but you also vistas. are close to an airport, so you can get to places.
3: Right. Yeah, I feel like it's a little the best of both worlds. We we do have really beautiful like bike trails and mountains yeah. and and mountain sports if you're into that um and then there's also like infrastructure has really increased and improved with the influx of people so there's more places to shop things to do it's really a great place to be
2: so let me ask you natasha how did you learn to cook because like now with natasha's kitchen all your videos and now your cookbook you really are uh, an expert i mean it's for real for real like you have great instincts with cooking and flavors and we'll get into many of the recipes that i'm drawn towards but tell me a little bit how did you learn yourself
3: Yeah. So when I first got married, um, my husband and I wanted to recreate the things that we grew up loving. And it kind of goes back to my grandma where my grandma spoiled my mom by not making her cook because she had 12 brothers. And then my mom spoiled the five girls Um, And maybe it was easier to cook without having five kids in the kitchen. I don't know. And so I grew up not knowing how to cook those familiar dishes. And so we got married. We started really like diving into cookbooks and online sources. And we really couldn't find anything that resembled what we grew up with. And so we're like, let's start this blog. And we named it Natasha's Kitchen. And Mm -hmm. we just kind of started creating recipes and sharing them. And our audience loved them. And it just grew and grew from there
2: it's it's really neat um and cool to hear this story because listen that story that you just told is the story of thousands of people like i'm not seeing what i'm what i'm what i make i want to start a blog and many people do it and they do it for fun it's like a fun project but what you've done you've grown this community hundreds of thousands of subscribers millions of subscribers really and tell, like, let's get into how you grew this audience. I'm just curious, people love what you do. How did you do that?
3: Yeah. So I think it initially started with, you know, um people were looking for those familiar, comforting things that they grew up eating. I think our initial audience was primarily um, Slavic people who yeah. wanted to recreate those same dishes. And then, People love the flavors. People spread the word. Yeah. Um. And then we got into creating videos, and I feel like our site and our our brand really took off from there.
2: So Slavic communities were you were you writing all in English or were you mixing it?
3: We were writing all in English. All in English. Yes. Okay.
2: And so you're able to target that audience. and then ultimately, this book is obviously for many people. Yes. And when you start to talk to a community, how do you how do you decide on what you're gonna make? Is there like a way of, of tapping into the community?
3: Yeah, so we, we constantly ask people, what do you want to see next? <laughs> um, what do you want to learn how to cook? And and we definitely listen to our audience. That's how our cookbook was born in the first place. It was like the one of the most requested things that people have been asking for. And it's just at the point where they're banging down the door. So we're right. like, let's do this. <laughs> they're
2: like, we need another scrambled egg version, Natasha. Make it happen.
3: Yeah, and the cookbook is really a little bit of everything that the audience loves. You know, we've got all the chapters, breakfast, lunch, big section on main course a, yeah. a big section on salads and sides and dessert and and we really tried to put everything in there that our audience loves
2: i love it well we'll get to, to those scrambled eggs soon but last question about the book um you know making cookbooks is challenging oh it's it can be very challenging especially your first one i want to get a sense was there something that you really liked about making a cookbook because i know to say it's all good is like a lie it's like very challenging.
3: It's incredibly challenging. Probably one of the hardest projects I've ever taken on. And I have friends who have published cookbooks before and, you know, they try to warn you. But it's kind of like when you have your first or before you have kids, you don't really know how hard it is going (laughs) to be until you actually have kids. And it's the same thing with the cookbook. I felt like. Um, if I were to describe it, it's like standing in front of a fire hydrant with your mouth wide open, and it's coming at you. It's it's just an amazing experience.
2: Yeah, like like sipping from the from the fire hydrant. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> I love that. That's really really smart. And and yeah, um, well you've put in the work. It, it's a beautiful book. And one of the recipes, scrambled eggs, the breakfast of champions. Everyone's got a scrambled egg take, but yours looks different. What? Tell me about it a little bit.
3: Yeah, so why I call it breakfast of champions is because it's a meal in one. While you're cooking the eggs, the bacon and asparagus are cooking in the oven, and it just all comes together so fast, quick and easy meal, um, which is what a lot of families are looking for, especially on busy mornings. Um, But the process for making the scrambled eggs, and it's really my husband taught me how to make the best scrambled eggs um, with pulling the eggs across the pan. So you create these like lovely ribbons and you don't break the eggs. So it, it looks like it looks like gourmet scrambled eggs in your own kitchen. But it's so easy.
2: Yeah, I uh, I, I turn to eggs usually in cookbooks and, and like to see the technique. And yours is great. Another recipe, this cheesy chicken fritters. Now, it's unique. It's shredded chicken and made into a fritter. So it's like something we don't think about. It's like very protein rich, which is nice. I'm like super on protein cake recently. It's just <laughs> for me. But is this like something that is maybe from the Ukraine and like one like a, a a recipe of your heritage?
3: I I think it was definitely influenced by my heritage. It's actually my aunt Tanya's recipe. And there was um, one Sunday where we had literally fifty people visiting us from Washington, and they were family members and. We didn't know what to cook for that kind of crowd. And I just it just speaks to the like innovativeness of Ukrainian cooking and taking simple ingredients and turning them into something absolutely delicious that everyone's gonna love. And of course there's dill in them and yeah. I feel like anytime you put dill in it, it becomes Ukrainian.
2: <laughs> uh, that's fun. So like it's let's take us through the recipe just a little bit. Shredded chicken and you're making it into fritters, shallow frying. Tell us a little bit about how you make these. Fritters.
3: Yeah. So you can actually use either raw chicken or cooked chicken. Yeah. So they're really versatile, which I love. Um, so if you're using raw chicken, you just dice it up and then mix it up with um, cheese and mayo and seasonings. And um, you turn it into fritters and you saute them. They Mm -hmm. keep really well. And then you can use leftover chicken, shred it up and create the same kind of patties. And they're just they're great Um, side or main dish. You can also use them as sliders. You can use them as a side dish, as a main dish. There's so many ways to enjoy those.
2: So, yeah, it sounds really cool that you can take like a rotisserie chicken and shred it and, and do it that way. And it's not shallow fried. I was wrong. It's actually sautéed, which is different. And and it seems really. And then you add the dill, obviously. Yes. Is there a condiment in all you're putting in the fritters?
3: Um, there's mayo in them. Yeah. Um, and then there's also a dip. So the dip you have to try. It's a lemon aioli. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just takes them over the top. Yeah,
2: I'm sold. I'm. I'm that's like. Chicken is is obviously the most popular protein, right? Yes. And everyone has some, but like we get bored by it very quickly. Mm-hmm. And the idea that you're making it into a fritter, um, listen, great recipe. <laughs> I want to move on to borscht. Mm-hmm. Borscht is obviously if you're a fan of a do you do you go to a Have you been there? Okay, well I have maybe not. one day, one day, <laughs> East Village Ukrainian restaurant, mm-hmm. um. Their borscht is, is super fire. It's great. Yeah. And, but everyone's got a borscht recipe. Natasha, tell us what makes a great borscht.
3: Yeah. So I think the key to a great borscht is, well, there's there's a few things. The first would be the lawn simmering with like a bone-in meat because it really infuses the broth with a ton of flavor. And then the second thing, I think the biggest thing, um, because you can't even make a vegetarian borscht, mm-hmm. um, is to saute the beets, just like you would saute the aromatics, you know, the carrots and onions. You would saute the beets on the skillet. It really brings out the flavor. And that's what makes the broth really that beautiful, vibrant bread. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and then, of course, your toppings. So I love to add um, either mayo or sour cream to it afterwards. Okay. Um, and that's I guess that's the American thing is the mayo.
2: <laughs> yeah, so mayo de borsche is something. Yes. I mean, sour cream, definitely have heard that. Mayo is new to me. I love that. I mean, I fucking love
3: mayonnaise. It's, it's lovely. It Ooh. really is so good. And a little bit of dill on top.
2: Do you have a preferred mayo? Um,
3: I think just any of the the popular brands, the regular mayos, yeah. not, not the, you know, Wow, what are they called? The Miracle Whip. Yeah. We don't go there.
2: (laughs) No, Miracle Whip, truly only in America. (laughs) Let's save Miracle Whip for another recipe. Right. Maybe not for Borscht. Um, Do you eat a lot of Borscht?
3: We do. My yeah. kids love it. So I'm so making good. it. Yes. And it also freezes well.
2: Yeah, it definitely freezes well. Great call. And, and I love a good borscht is, uh, I mean, a bad borscht is will turn you off forever.
3: Yeah. But
2: a good borscht will, you know, we got to do this like once or twice a winter.
3: Right. Makes you fall in love with beets.
2: Beets. Beets is great. Mm-hmm. Okay. Best ever brownies. Okay. Fighting words a yes. little bit. Um, great photo. So <laughs> Thank you. Respect your photographer for Backing up the photo evidence, but tell me, Natasha, how are these the best brownies ever?
3: So first of all, they are a little naughty. They are decadent. I've got a fair amount of butter in there, but it's highly necessary. So it creates like the fudgiest brownies. And what's great about that is... They stay moist for days. Um, Just imagine like a gooey fudgy brownie between graham crackers and a marshmallow at the campfire. Like it's just, (laughs) it's such a treat.
2: Mm. Is there a frosting on it or is it a hard top? What's the top of it?
3: Um, The top of it is just plain. It crackles up in the oven, which is lovely. And I love to serve it also with like a scoop of ice cream.
2: Twist my arm. Uh (laughs) (laughs) That sounds great. It is. Um, Do they really last for a week? I feel like. I mean, like, do people actually not eat them before the week is over?
3: They Not in our house. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. I feel... This is
3: maybe for people who are making the whole batch and there's just one of them.
2: Yeah, one person (laughs) done that before. That's always... I still can't. Like, (laughs) a week is... Man, they they go fast. Yeah. Okay, so we often, in in media, we often forget about the last recipe in a cookbook. We don't talk about it at all, but I want to talk about yours. So on page 274... Um, you have something called the next level cheese board. Yeah. And I love this idea because there's a whole entertaining section at the end of the book, which is nice to see that you can actually throw parties. What is this next level cheese board? How are you doing that?
3: Yeah. So next level cheese board. What I love about a cheese board is you can scale it up or down. You can make it as expensive or inexpensive as you want it to be. Um, but there's some things to keep in mind with the cheese board. You know, you want to have variety. Um Getting hard cheeses and soft cheeses. You want to have options for people who are gluten free, maybe get a gluten free cracker. You want to have pairings of what fruit goes well with what cheese, what spread goes well with what cheese. Um, And so just making it look abundant, um, I think, really makes a next level cheese board.
2: Throw in some fruit, like. Pack it up, you know, make right. it look big and, yeah. and then and have a select cheese. I like your call.
3: Yeah. And then the first time I built a cheese board, because you want it to be impressive, right, if you're going to serve a, yeah. a cheese board, um, I had to do so much research of, like, what pairs well with yeah. what. And so I did that for you, and it's right there. It's <laughs> make, there. Made it easy.
2: Don't forget. Yes. Well, switching gears, and I, I did not want to skip talking to you about the war, because obviously this is all consuming in our lives but mostly in your life it is your country and i wanted you to tell our listeners directly is there something about the war in ukraine that is not being talked about enough
3: yeah i think i think it's important to remember the humanitarian side And there's a lot of efforts that are still going on to help the people there, civilians, um, people who are forgotten. Um, For example, one of the things that we're doing at Natasha's Kitchen is sponsoring a mobile soup kitchen in a part of Ukraine that is like they're having some active active combat areas for elderly people who either can't leave because of health reasons or um, they just financially, they have no way out. And so there's still so many things going on there where people need help in terms of humanitarian aid. So I would encourage people to um, find out in your own community what outreach is happening. Um, Compassion International is doing some great things. So just seek out those opportunities to help people In a big way, it's become very political um, because of the, you know, it's on the news all the time. And I think it's really important to look at the humanitarian aspect.
2: It's such a good point that um, we need to look beyond the politics, especially in American politics right now, um, the funding or defunding, whatever it may be, and think about the humanitarian side. And you mentioned one organization. Is there any other organizations that we should Google and seek out? that um that are sending money or 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 food to Ukraine.
3: All right, one that I can speak of is humanitarian aid for Ukraine Idaho. It's my parents local church in Boise and they are the ones that orchestrate the soup kitchen. They have a lot of people on the ground in Ukraine and so I love that I know where those funds are going and that they're going to help people directly. And all of the funds are going to help people directly.
2: That's great to know. I will link to um, resources in the show notes. So check out those links if you'd like to help uh, support Ukraine and the people of Ukraine. I want to switch gears to our final section, Natasha. On This Is Taste, we ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check. Are you ready? Ready. Ready. The best breakfast?
3: Best breakfast would be my daughter's omelet loaded with gooey cheese. I can't resist her omelets.
2: Oh, my God. Your daughter is in the kitchen.
3: Yes, and she's eight.
2: Yeah, I've seen her make some cameos. <laughs> she's great. She's she's definitely following in your footsteps. Yes. It's amazing. The best dessert?
3: Ooh, cheesecake. All day
2: long. Okay, so you're in New York. Is it on your radar where to go here in New York for cheesecake?
3: no. Tell me. All
2: right. I'm going to shout out <laughs> Juniors. Now, Juniors, you know, there's it's like a big brand, and people might say, oh, well, it's a big brand. It's really the best. Ooh. There's one in Times Square. There's one in Brooklyn. There's one, there's two in Times Square. So that's the guy. We'll so, check it out. Do you have a favorite topping?
3: Uh, berry sauce.
2: Yeah, definitely love that. It
3: cuts the sweetness. Perfect.
2: Favorite way to use chocolate?
3: Open package, put in mouth. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Wonderful! <laughs> That's funny. I love that. It's it's true. Do you have a favorite. Do you have a favorite bar of choice or brand or anything chocolate wise?
3: I like dark chocolate. Yeah, dark nice. chocolate gal.
2: That's nice. The best bread.
3: I'm a big fan of sourdough. Yeah, I bake it every week. My family loves it, and. It's a healthier bread, so mm-hmm. that's my go-to.
2: Do you have? Um, do you use? Uh, do you just do the same method over and over? Is it all about repetition?
3: Yes. Yeah. I've I've pretty much, I could do it in my sleep. At that's this a point,
2: great, great feeling.
3: Yeah, I've probably made hundreds of loaves.
2: That's so great. Um, your favorite American fast food chain?
3: Uh, Chick fil A.
2: Okay. Now, is it no? Totally. Is there a favorite? Is it just the chicken sandwich?
3: The chicken sandwich, but their fries. their yeah. fries are pretty good. The
2: lines at Chick Fil A. But
3: they go so fast. I mean, you're. It's like five minutes.
2: Natasha, you're. They're, are you're they're amazing. On, are you on the payroll?
3: Uh, <laughs> that's true. They go fast. Okay,
2: I respect that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is there a chef or f- cookbook writer that you'd like to train under? Is there somebody who l- you'd love to learn from?
3: Ooh. I would absolutely love to learn from and meet Ina Garten. Yeah. She's always been like my cooking role model. I just love her.
2: I hope that can happen. You share a publisher. Yes. You share an imprint.
3: Yes. And my cookbook designer designed all of Ina's books.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Is that Mary, Mary Sarah? Yes. Mary Sarah Quinn. Gotta her We don't She's give them. She's amazing. We don't talk about Mary Sarah Quinn enough on this show. She is like the absolute legend in these halls. She
3: is. Love your, her.
2: Your book is beautiful. Thank nice you. Nice job. All right. A couple more. Speaking of cookbooks, your favorite cookbook of all time?
3: Ooh, that's an easy one. Um, The Joy of Cooking. Yeah. It is the book that I received as a gift for my wedding from my best friend. And I still to this day use it all the time. It's just an amazing resource. I mean, it has everything.
2: I love that. Is there a favorite recent cookbook discovery that's, you know, a cookbook that's landing on your stack that you wanna you wanna shout out?
3: Um, let's see. Uh, I would say Gina's new book, her oh, th- Seven Ingredients.
2: Yeah. Yep, I, yep. I
3: love it. I love how she's got the ingredients on the sides of the page, little photos of the Gina
2: Homolka? Yes. Yeah, Gina Homolka, Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Great call. That's a Skinny good one. Skinny taste. Yep. Skinny taste. is nice. nice book there. A um, couple more. Your favorite vegetable.
3: Ooh. Um, is avocado a vegetable? <laughs>
2: uh, 150%. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that's the one. Avo. Uh, <laughs> that, I've not had that answer before. That's a, that's like truly really? probably my answer.
3: Uh, that surprises me. No one said that.
2: Avo is like a fruit. I mean, it's a fruit, but it's a vegetable. Like tomatoes is, you know, yeah. technically this or that. But man, great call. Last one, your favorite sandwich.
3: Ooh, I'm a burger girl. I think that's the sandwich I have the most often. And I have a great one in the cookbook. It's called The Cowboy Burger. It has onion rings in it. <laughs> it is that. amazing. It's
2: a good one. I, I really love that 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 recipe. Natasha Kravchuk, thank you so much for joining This Is Taste.
3: It's been a pleasure.
1: This Is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at TasteCooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.